Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Sheree Louise Turner here, the host and producer of Women's Running Stories. And before we get into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we are currently sponsored by The Feed. That's thefeed.com. And they are the largest online nutrition and supplement marketplace for athletes. And one of the things I love about The Feed is I know I can trust the products that they offer because The Feed was made for athletes by athletes. Everything has been carefully chosen and you can trust in the quality of what you're buying. And this is great for me because I like to try new things. So I was looking for a high-protein bar that I could use for after my workouts because I find it challenging to get enough protein in my diet. And I came across Bonk Breaker Bars. And other than being really fun to say, they're high in protein. So I'm really looking forward to trying those. And I also know I can find all my old favorites, Cliff, Goo, Piggy Bar, Martin. They're all there, too. So go to thefeed.com for all of your nutrition and supplement needs. And as part of this sponsorship, The Feed is offering $80 in credit. All you need to do is go to thefeed.com forward slash forward. So yes, it's forward slash and then the word forward. And you claim $80 in credit. So enjoy shopping at The Feed. Go use that credit. And now on to the episode. I had been so depressed and suicidal and disconnected. And this feeling of running allowed me to feel embodied again, right? Like I felt the way that I was in control of something, which is, you know, my whole life felt completely out of control, but I could tell myself to move harder, to slow down, to, right, I could change my breathing. All of a sudden, I felt like I was in control of myself. And when I finished the run, I felt like, oh my God, I want to I try this again. I want to get that feeling where I'm connected to myself and connected to the other people around me because they're also moving. There was this glimmer of, oh, my life could be different. Hi, my name is Allison Mariella Desir. I am a mother, I'm an activist, I'm a community builder, and I'm the author of Running While Black, which is out this October. Women's Running. running, running. Women's Running Stories. More specifically, Allison's book is out today, October 18th. And I encourage you to buy your own copy and maybe even a copy for a friend or two. And hello and welcome to Women's Running Stories, where we share stories about running told by women. I am Cherie Louise Turner, your host and producer. And yes, in this episode, we are featuring Allison Mariella Desir. On this show, we often feature stories about how running is about more than the simple act of putting one foot in front of the other. 
Allison's story is exceptional in this regard, and a great example of that is this much-anticipated book launch. Allison's book, Running While Black, I hope and I believe will become a bestseller and a cornerstone reference in the running world, especially for white runners. I've been wanting to have Allison on the show for a while now because of her experiences as a runner and also because I have learned so much from her writing and her activism on her social media and through her interviews. And I have really been looking forward to this book release because I suspected it would feature more of the insights, education, personal experiences, and actions that we can all learn from to move this sport forward. And wow, it is all that. One thing that strikes me about Allison's writing and when I listen to her speak is that she is clear, she is straightforward, and what she says is true. In her book, she speaks about her own experiences as a Black American woman runner and about her total love for this sport. You're going to hear all about that in this episode, about how running truly changed her life. Allison also speaks out about how running has become completely intertwined with her work as an activist, how she utilizes the sport for social change through the many groups she has founded, including, as she'll mention, Harlem Run, Run for All Women, and meaning through movement. She also talks about how she is working toward creating change within the running industry, specifically through the Running Industry Diversity Coalition. The subtitle of this book is Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Built for Us, and she dives deep into this reality, the reality that running was built by and for white people mostly white men, but also white women. And she walks us through how we got here and the realities of where we are today. To put it plainly, she talks about racism and sexism in our sport and the fact that running does not live up to a claim that we've all made for so long, that this sport is welcoming to everyone. To quote Allison, Running has lived in this mythical space for so long, and I felt like I wanted to share that that's just not true. It has pretended that it is accessible and open to everyone, end quote. So for me, this book marks a moment. Now we know. And I'm not saying that no one has pointed out these realities in the past, but here it is summed up in a beautifully concise and bound form. And as uncomfortable and ugly as the past and many of our current realities are, this book in the end gives me hope. Change is happening, and we can all be a part of it. Now, let's get to Allison's story. In this episode, Allison tells her running journey and touches on many of the topics that are featured in her book. So if it isn't abundantly clear, what I really hope is that this serves as an inspiration to read her whole story in her book. Here on the podcast, you're going to hear Allison's story completely in her own voice, I will be back after the end, so let's get to it. Here's Allison. I started running when I was very little, actually. I um, I was, you know, I remember being in elementary school and racing boys during recess. I was a very fast sprinter, and I went on to run the 100-meter dash, 200-meter dash. I moved up to the 400-meter dash and the 400-meter hurdles, and that was really all I knew until... 10 years ago in in 2012, 
when I found distance running. I was very depressed at the time and didn't ever leave my couch, just would sort of scroll through social media and look at other people live their lives. And I stumbled upon a friend of mine who was sharing his experience for training for a marathon and fundraising for an organization. And he just seemed to be having so much fun and meeting so many people and pushing himself outside of his comfort zone that I stuck with his you know, process. I, I consumed and loved everything he posted. And I had never known anybody in my life who had run marathons, right? Seeing him truly transformed my life. He was a black guy who was, you know, not the body that I thought was a runner's body. He is five foot 11. He was, um, I don't know, 170, 180 pounds, maybe more. He had his hair locked. He was a member of a black fraternity. And, you know, the, the message that we all get, the message that we get from the media that we see in most long distance uh, running events across the country is of thin white men, thin white women. And if there are black people, um, more often than not, it's East African black people. So seeing my friend sort of, in my mind, I was like, wait a second, black people don't run marathons. Like that is not uh, an experience I had growing up. That's not what I consumed in all these other spaces. So um, it disrupted what I thought I knew and gave me an opportunity to imagine what that could be like for me. So it was like this connection to something that was so big and so far removed from my experience. And he was writing poetry about it. And I was really at my lowest point and was willing to try anything. And a year later, I signed up for that same race, the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon. Um, and signing up for a marathon is, is one thing, uh, then actually having to train for it is another. I remember those first runs were, it almost felt like, I imagine, um, uh, I'm thinking of like some kind of baby animal trying to walk for the first time. Even my son, right? How they, they're sort of trying to find their legs and um, suddenly moving in ways they hadn't thought they could before. That's what my first long distance run 10 years ago felt like. It felt at once a sort of reconnection to who I was. I knew what it felt like to push myself and to work hard, but also a totally new experience of pushing um, beyond what I thought I was capable of. That first run was a 5K, and I had never run anything like that before. I did not expect that metallic taste <laughs> to get come into my mouth as quickly as it did, right? Because I was pushing hard like I would in a shorter distance recognizing oh but I have to do this for 5k so there was that like a little bit of old but a lot of new coming into that first experience so I quickly learned that it would be more difficult than I thought but honestly the fundraising part I, I had to raise $3,500 and coming from a space where I hadn't been talking to anybody, where I was completely isolated, that would require me reaching out to folks, reconnecting with old contacts, putting myself out there in a way that I hadn't in so long. So, you know, running the training for the marathon was hard, but I would say just 
thinking about fundraising that much money while being unemployed and disconnected was even harder. That's where the, the power of community piece came to me. I, I realized that, you know, at the time, $3,500 was a lot. I mean, it's still a lot of money, <laughs> but it was even more money to me than as somebody who I mentioned was unemployed and disconnected and isolated. But I realized that, again, wow, I, could, I can do something big with the support of my community and that people were not only investing in the cause, which was fundraising for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is so important, important, but they were fundraising because they believed in me, right? Like the messages that I was getting were not, um, some were of course connected to the cause and people who had lost people or people who identified deeply with that cause. But many of the messages were like, you got this, Allison. Like I would support you no matter what you were doing. I can't wait to see what you accomplish and then what comes next. And I was like, oh my gosh, like people are literally putting their money where their mouth is because they believe that I'm capable of doing something great, both running and making a difference for this cause. So by the time I headed to San Diego, I, I really had regained my sense of self and still unsure whether the full distance would be possible because I think our longest training run was like 18 or 20 miles. So I, I, I always wondered like, do they, like what happens in the last 6.2, right? Like, why don't we ever run it? <laughs> so I had some worries about that, but I just, I was a, a very different person. And when I completed that marathon, it's almost like I could no longer understand who that person was 16 weeks ago, right? Like I knew how painful um, the experience was in terms of how emotionally, this emotional state that I was in, like I knew how bad it was. And I could remember days when I didn't want to leave my house or leave my bed even, but it felt like it was a whole different person, right? It felt like, oh my God, that was so long ago because so much had changed for me, really physically, of course, but more mentally, right? The week by week, you're doing something harder than you had done the week before. So it gave me this understanding that I once had, but that when you're depressed, you sort of lose the sense that, oh, you can take small, um, you can take something really difficult, break it up into small pieces and um, make your way towards that goal. Like it reminded me that I was capable of that. And crossing that finish line was proof that all of the sacrifices I had made were worth it and that this wouldn't be a one and done, right? Like this was going to be a part of my life because it brought me back to life. Very soon after entering running and running my first marathon, I saw this connection between physical activity and how my mental health improved. And I thought to myself, like, wow, nobody says that explicitly, right? Like people say things about a runner's high or, yeah, you know, you always feel better after a run, but nobody talks deeply about what that connection is. So I went back to school and I got my uh, second master's in, in mental health counseling. And I thought to myself, my dream job would be to create programming that combines movement with mental health and not in terms of like one-on-one -on -one therapy, which is hugely valuable, but I'm, I'm really more interested in bringing community together for these conversations and creating the space for that. And so Meaning Through Movement was born, this tour that does exactly that. It features uh, 5K or yoga or some kind of movement with conversation around um, topics that are taboo and mental health related. We just recently had a conversation around uh, body image and movement. And this was probably the first time 
my entire life that I was able to be in a room where we talked about the pressures of looking like a quote-unquote runner and what does it mean to have healthy body image? How do we sort of unlearn all of the messages that we consume around us about needing to be thinner, needing to be tanner, needing to have X, Y, Z, right? And, and it was incredible to be able to process that in, in a room with other people. So all of that was sparked in this first marathon training period, and most especially that throughout this training, there were not a lot of black and brown people. And I wondered, okay, where are they? Why is this the case? And then what can I do about it? Hear Her Sports is a podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve and make a difference in their lives. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery, a former professional cyclist. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in the business of sport through a thoughtful conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. My guests and I explore the glorious and frustrating issues in sports, history, equity, training, nutrition, and so much more. Join us for inspiration, for community, and for love of being a strong athletic woman. Black people have actually been central to long distance history. Uh, we've not only been there forever, but we actually helped create what we know of as long distance running, you know, the running community. And for me, that was like, that was validating because I love this space. And it sort of was like, of course we've been here. Like, of course we contributed to this sport, right? Just like, I mean, it's, it was like when I learned that um, enslaved people built the White House, right? It's like, wow, you want to call us like slaves? Like, well, we were like freaking engineering <laughs> marvels <laughs> given the conditions we were under, right? Like, so it's sort of, it removes, it, it allows you to access um, a sense of pride and power that is intergenerational that people would like you to believe did not exist, right? So there's certainly a, a, a greater sense of belonging that I felt just in terms of like, this is as much mine as it's anybody else's. And I think the same for indigenous people, right? Like, and that's a whole other conversation, but around ultra marathoning and how, you know, thin white men think that they invented that. It's like, no, no. Um, so that's, I mean, and that's why history is so important to me because I think learning your history allows you to fully understand the present and make choices for the future. You know, in writing my book, I actually was able to sort of put all the pieces of the puzzle together and realize that I've always been an activist. I've always been really outspoken. And so running and, and anything that I've cared about and been interested in, I've always wanted to leave it better than I found it. When I came to running, I found like, wow, this thing has changed my life. But at the time, none of my friends were runners. Like, why, why didn't they run? You know, I thought about my experiences in high school and even in college, I was 
on the Columbia track team for like 0.5 seconds, <laughs> but it was all the black kids were um, sprinters and jumpers and all the white kids were cross country and long distance. And so I started to wonder about those things. And, you know, like with everything in this world, nothing is by accident. There are particular histories and structures and isms that have created the context for whatever our reality is. But, you know, when I set about to start Harlem Run, it was, I, I wasn't that thoughtful or intentional yet. I just knew there weren't a lot of people in, like me in these spaces. I'm going to create a running group in a space that's historically Black and uh, welcome everyone. And so that was really, you know, where Harlem Run started. And, and as, as Harlem Run grew, as I began to, began to lean into my leadership abilities, I saw, I saw even more inequities, right? Like I saw how the New York City running scene at the time and very much still is very male dominated and male leaders, you know, the thing about, <laughs> the thing about uh, being a black woman is you have uh, the forces of racism and sexism and, you know, if you have, depending on your identity, perhaps uh, ableism, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in instances where I saw these other black and brown men leading running groups, I thought, oh, for sure, these would be my allies and they'll want to support me. But there was like the lure of sexism and patriarchy was still too strong. And so I was often excluded, called really bad names that really spoke more to their insecurity um, but that I pushed up against. And, you know, I just think my confidence, the same way that first 16-week training program, it was a really a, a confidence-building exercise. The more I, the more Harlem Run grew, the more opportunities came, the more people I spoke with, I realized, like, okay, I'm not going to stay quiet. Like, there are too many things that are preventing people like me from occupying space the way that we want to or feeling a sense of freedom that I, that I have to speak about it. You know, I've always seen movement connected with activism, whether it's Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad or it's Martin Luther King and the March on Washington. You know, black and brown people have always used movement as radical protest. So, you know, that for me was really recalling the work of ancestors and contemporaries when I started embedding that into the work that I was doing. So Harlem Run is the original group that I founded. And during that time, you know, there was the 2016 election where Trump ended up being elected. And that was a moment, like I, Harlem Run was already deeply embedded in activism in terms of the causes that we supported. And even the way that Harlem Run was transforming the idea of who is a runner and what resources people in Harlem had access to. But with Run for All Women, what came out of this 250-mile uh, run I organized from Harlem to D.C. was we raised over $100,000 for Planned Parenthood, and we really ignited a spark in a lot of people, not just women, you know, all genders across the world, really, about how you can use running for social change. And that organization, now I'm not even, um, we have new leadership, which is really exciting. It's, it's so cool to be able to start something and then hand it off to folks who can take it to another level. Um, that organization has, has since then continued to, to raise money for important causes. Right now, they're organizing a uh, relay in Alabama that raises money for Black Voters Matter. Uh, they've raised over $300,000 for Black Voters Matter. So that was very much like a civic-minded social change organization. 
you know, and throughout this process, as I got more, as I came to have more leadership roles, I also came to understand more deeply how the industry, meaning those who make money in the running space, how that industry works and how that industry is really ultimately responsible for these images, for setting the, the idea of who belongs and who doesn't. And I began to go to conferences and see that in most conferences, it was, you know, middle-aged white men who were the owners of running stores, who were the CEOs of running companies, who were the editors at publications. And I would sit there and be like, does nobody else think that this is really odd? Right? That like running is something that supposedly we can all do, but 80 to 90% of the folks who control the decision-making, um, control all the decisions, control all of the money are white men. How could they possibly understand speak to the needs of all people and furthermore think about all of the way that power is concentrated in these hands running has lived in this mythical space for so long and i I felt like um I, i wanted to share that that's just not true it has pretended that it's accessible and open to everyone and that is an experience that is only true of cis het white men and to a certain extent women and I felt compelled to share the experience of other folks you know of black people who do and want who who do love the sport of running and want to love the sport of running but have never had that experience of it being just open to all and just show up you know for many for many white people um, who have running groups and they say everybody's welcome. They can't really wrap their mind around why a single black person showing up in the group might not feel a sense of belonging, right? And belonging doesn't mean that nobody said hello, although sometimes people don't acknowledge you. But so what I like to do is I like to flip it on reverse. Let's say there was a group of exclusively black people and you were showing up as the one white person, right? Wouldn't you notice like, whoa, I'm the only one here. Right. And I don't know what feelings might come up inside of you because that depends on your own personal lived experience. But based on the way that the messages that society regularly gives out to people, there would probably a sense be a sense of unease or a sense of wondering, like, will I fit in here? Right. But whiteness is so understood as the default that it's hard for white people to see why a non-white person being in a space would be uncomfortable because the default is whiteness. So a lot of the the lack of belonging that I talk about in my book is more of that nuanced stuff. Like no, there were, I mean, people have called me the N word, um, but that wasn't, my experience wasn't, you know, that kind of violence. My experience was more like um, showing up to spaces and being the only one and then having people have this expectation that I would explain the entire black race to them or, you know, get, answer these questions of like, even, and that continues today, right? When people are like, but I don't like, what can I do to, you know, to end racism? <laughs> I'm like, well, one, it took hundreds of years to get here. And two, like, there are so many resources out there. Like I am not the single voice of, of these issues you know, belonging is really, people feel a sense of belonging when they can show up to a space and be their authentic selves. And so what does that mean? That means that you can show up to a space and not code switch. You can show up to a space and 
have your hair however you like it. You can show up to a space and wear whatever you want to wear. And that the group there is able to receive you without it being strange, being something, you know, even worth commenting on. And again, I always try to give examples. So at Harlem Run, we have we had um, one person who showed up who's um, hard of hearing, deaf, hard of hearing. And I had to check myself because I suddenly wanted to be this caretaker, right? I wanted to, like, I was so in trying to be so intentional about like hovering over this person. And then I was like, wait a second, like I'm doing this because this person has this disability and all of the things that I perceive might be difficult or hard for them. And I'm, I'm treating them poorly. (laughs) I mean, like I'm overcompensating and doing things that are singling them out and likely not making them feel welcome, even though I think I'm doing the opposite. So, you know, in my life, I've, I've really, what I've been doing and building all these communities are building spaces where I try to make people feel a sense of belonging and where there's an opportunity to have dialogue when we miss the mark, because, you know, the truth is you can't know what everybody needs and, and that's not what we're hoping for, right? Like that's not, that's not the goal of racial equity work is for everybody to feel good at all times but it's to continue to work towards that and to create a culture um, where we can be iterating on processes, where we can be like, oh, that's not working, let's try this. Oh, we failed to have all voices at the table, let's have this voice in. Oh, you know what I mean? It's like, um, and, and what, what, where we're at in many cases is a resistance to that. Like, this is the way we've always done it. No, these people are trying to replace us. No, we don't want that. You're complaining too much, right? <laughs> so it's, it's just so clear that we're not there yet. You know, we've done a lot of work in this space and there are, I want to say less than 20 running retail stores that are owned by non-white people. And for one, that's just not consistent with the national demographics, right? The national demographics, white people make up around 60% of the population. People who identify as non-white make up about 40% of the population. And the white population is actually shrinking. So what you have, and this is not my own quote, but what you have is a power structure that resembles the plantation, right? Where white people are at the top in the ownership level and black and brown people are doing the grunt work. Um, And I just was like, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so from there, um, you know, the Running Industry Diversity Coalition was born. And, and actually, even more recently than that, um, Women and Femme of Color Take the Lead is a retreat that's all about uh, creating and um, enlarging the talent pipeline, right? There are women and femme of color who work in the running industry, but we're often the only, we often don't have access to mentoring. There's often difficulty retaining us because of uh, cultural issues. And so this retreat is the first of its kind to, um, to address that and hopefully, you know, continue to build on the talent that exists. So I'm currently in this, um, a hundred day challenge with a few friends of mine where each of us has picked a thing that we commit to doing for a hundred days. And my commitment was 30 minutes of running or walking a day. 
So this is unique for me. I, I haven't run every day since giving birth, but my run yesterday, I felt heavy and tired, but I knew that I had a lot to process with all of the, uh, all of the interviews and tour dates coming up. So while I felt really heavy physically, I felt really light moving through space um, because running always helps me tackle a problem or process things or sometimes not think of anything at all. So it was just a quick 30 minute heavy run that I felt better afterwards as I always do. There are no ways that running, <laughs> there are no ways that running has not changed my life. That was a double negative. Um, I mean, so I found my community, right, through Harlem Run. I found my partner, my, my husband I met through Harlem Run. Um, we actually, our son's name is Kuri, which we call him Kuri, but Kuri is Haitian Creole for to run because, you know, running is everything for us. Um, I, I mean, jobs that I've held have all been running related. Um, it's a huge part of my mental health regimen, my self-care regimen. Um, when I travel, the first thing I do is figure out where I can run and what groups are around. I mean, there's no aspect of my life that has not been touched by running. As I heard Allison say those words during recording, I remember thinking, that is a perfect place for her story to end on the podcast. So there you have it. But obviously, this is not the end of Allison's story. She continues to run and to love this sport, and she continues to do the work and also to inspire and encourage and help make space for other people doing the work to move the sport of running forward to a place where we can live up to this claim that it is truly open and welcome to everyone. And not only open and welcome, but also, as she touched on, it's a place where people feel like they belong. I thank Allison for all that she's done already and for the work that she continues to do, and I really appreciate her taking the time to be on the podcast. So, Allison, thank you. To learn more about Allison and the many organizations mentioned in this episode, including Harlem Run, Run for All Women, Meaning Through Movement, and the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, please visit her website, allisonmdesir.com. You can also order her book there. And of course, I will link to that website in the show notes. I will also link to Allison's Instagram account. She is at allisonmdesir. And I will link to the Instagram account for Take the Lead, which is at W-O-C Take the Lead. This is the retreat Allison mentioned, and it just took place at the end of September. And also, if you go to their link tree in their Instagram bio, you can learn more about Take the Lead. In the show notes, of course, I will also link to our social media. We are on Twitter at Women Run Stories. And we are on Instagram at Women's Running Stories. We're also on Facebook. 
And I, of course, encourage you to follow us on social media, where I do hope you will come and engage with us in between episodes or about episodes. I always love hearing from listeners, and I'm always very thankful for you being there. And I'm also thankful for you being here right now. Thank you for listening. Of course, I do not make this show by myself. Cormac O'Regan makes every bit of the music that you hear, and he does the sound design. He does that from his studio in Cork, Ireland. April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative does all the design work for the show, the website, the merch, the logo, all the graphics, all of it. And she does that from her office in Truckee, California. You can find April at bonfirecollaborative.com. Thank you once again for listening. This is Cherie Louise Turner, and as usual, I am coming to you from my studio closet in Somerville, Massachusetts. And until next time, I wish you healthy, joyful strides forward. There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you.